I Lived with a Killer is part of the Real Crime Collection in the Reels Files on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe to get new episodes each Thursday. Then, go to Reels.com to find chilling programs like this when you watch TV. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for the real crime series and specials you'll find only on Reels Channel. Polygamist Herbal LeBaron leads an infamous family cult he calls the Church of the Lamb of God. There's no other fundamentalist group that really rises to that same level of notoriety. Convincing his wives and children that he is the one true prophet. My father believed he was the one mighty and strong, the one that was going to set the house of God in order. But when he teaches his followers to embrace murder as a way of life, they were fully prepared to go inside and kill until they were killed. They just believed firmly that this is what they were supposed to do. The sins of the father are passed on to the sons. We were all brainwashed. People were doing things that they thought were right at the time. The ones that made it out alive, our lives were never the same. Herval LeBaron believes that being faithful requires shedding blood. As founder of the Church of the Lamb of God, Herval is the leader of the most murderous polygamist cult in U.S. history. Convinced he is God's true prophet on earth, Herval leaves a legacy of pain to his 13 wives and dozens of children. This large brood includes daughter Anna, born in 1968 and living in Dallas, Texas. Anna LeBaron, daughter. There were a lot of kids. My dad had more than 50 children. <laughs> and there were other children that were brought into the family through previous marriages. And so there were always a lot of kids around. The children are all raised to revere their father. As a child, we were taught that we were celestial children because we were born of the prophet, Ervil LeBaron. Factions of the family lived together in cramped houses. There was several sister wives living in a home at once, anywhere from 15 to 20 kids, plus adults. And so we didn't actually live in rooms, you know, with furniture like you would expect. At night, we would take a blanket from the corner of the living room, find a little place on the floor, and cuddle up with the kids that we weren't fighting with that day. Jennifer Dobbin, journalist, Salt Lake City. When you are groomed, to become a sister wife. You're especially taught not to be jealous and <laughs> angry. So you had to be prepared for that kind of life. And in order to live that kind of lifestyle, you have to suppress your emotions. With similar houses across the Western US, the family moves often from city to city. Polygamous families, the LeBarons and others, have always moved around. It's not safe to be identified as a polygamist. It's illegal pretty much everywhere you go. My dad had uh, factions of his cult in Mexico, California, Phoenix, Denver, and in Dallas and Houston. And so different people would be sent off different places. There was just a sense of fear all the time. People came and went in the middle of the night. But in reality, the LeBaron clan is constantly on the move because Ervil is a wanted man and not just because he's a polygamist. Ervil and his followers have carried out a series of murders, which he justifies on religious grounds. 
There have been a lot of things in the media about various polygamous groups, but I would say that the LeBarons may be the most notorious. David Schwindeman, Assistant U.S. Attorney, District of Utah, retired. Erbil LeBaron was a believer in some extraordinarily radical religious beliefs involving the kingdom of God on earth and the need to be violent in achieving the kingdom of God on earth. Ervil convinces his followers that in order to save the souls of the people who have gone astray, they must be killed. The founders of the Mormon Church taught something called blood atonement, which means that there are some sins that are not covered by the blood of Christ. And therefore, you have to atone for those sins with the shedding of your own blood. It started out as a way to ensure your salvation in the afterlife. And so it's kind of a really backwards thing where if you are blood atoning someone, you're helping save them, basically. So backwards. Raised in a large fundamentalist group run by their father, Erbil and his brother Joel clash over the group's leadership after their father's death, both claiming that they are the one true prophet. My father believed he was the one mighty and strong, the one that was going to set the house of God in order, which is part of the sacred texts of the Mormon church. And so any other prophet that was saying they were the one mighty and strong were obviously false prophets and had to be blood atoned. So it became a way for my father to get rid of the people that he considered a threat. So in 1969, Joel and Ervil are really sort of locked in battle over who's going to lead the church. Joel's really in charge at that time, and he decides that Ervil somehow has betrayed him or has been insubordinate some way, and so he ousts Ervil from the church. That comes back to haunt him in 1972, when Ervil sort of forms his own brand of the church and develops his own followers and then orders Joel's execution. And Joel is found in Mexico, shot through the neck and the head by someone who was loyal to Erbil. I was three years old when the hit was ordered on his brother and carried out. And so after that, we lived life on the run. Of course, us kids didn't know anything. We didn't know what was happening around us. We just knew that there was a lot of fear. Erbil expects that with Joel out of the way, Joel's followers will flock to his new church. But instead, they appoint another brother, Verlin, as their new leader. So Erbil makes it his mission to eliminate Verlin as well. He creates what amounts to a hit squad amongst his followers, including his youngest wife, Rena Shinoff, her brothers, Mark and Duane, and Erbil's stepchildren, Ramona and Eddie Marston. Erbil was really interesting in that he had these devoted, faithful followers, and he could command them to do whatever he wanted them to do. We believe he's responsible for more than a dozen murders, at least. Erbil would essentially call people to these missions. People were given a specific religious blessing to go out and do these sorts of things. They just believed firmly that this was what they were supposed to do, and they had been trained to be able to do it. The Las Molinas Raid, for example, that was one of these missions that Erbil called his people to do. In 1974, members of Erbil's hit squad raid a compound in Las Molinas, Mexico, searching for Verlin. 
By the end of the raid, nearly a dozen people are shot and 24 homes are firebombed. But Verlin is nowhere to be found. What we know is that by 1975, Erhel has had a string of religious revelations directing him to order murders of at least five other people. And in those situations, we believe at least 15 have also been injured. After the raid, the family moves again. Seven-year-old Anna is awakened in the middle of the night. One night, we were just told, get up, get your things, and go get in the truck. And a bunch of us were put in the back of a big box truck, like a moving truck. And we made the trek from Dallas, Texas, to Denver, Colorado. That contradiction was never explained, that, you know, why we suffered so much even though we were supposedly the celestial people and the ones that were going to put the kingdom of God in order on earth. <laughs> so the only explanation for that was that we were being persecuted. And so any lack that we had, that was a sacrifice that we made for the kingdom of God. In 1977, Ervil hatches a new plan to get rid of his rivals. He targets Rulin Allred, the leader of another polygamous group, running a naturopathic clinic in Murray, Utah. There were at least two motives associated with that. One was to get rid of a competitor prophet, a person he felt challenged his authority. And the other was to get rid of his brother, Verlin. And that would be accomplished by attracting Verlin and Verlin's group to the Allred funeral. Ervil, once again, dispatches members of his hit squad. Ervil picked people out of his group to commit the murders, both at the funeral and the murder of Dr. Allred. Rena and Ramona Mae Marston were picked to do the actual killing of Rulon Allred. One of the boys drove them to Rulon Allred's practice, waited outside, they went inside, walked through the surgery, went to the back of the practice, and Rena shot Dr. Allred in cold blood while his patients sat there. They marched back out, leaving patients and others aghast at what had just happened. That set in motion the plan to do the killing at the funeral. The young men that were picked to do that showed up at the funeral Sovereign and go in were prepared with large amount of ammunition. They were fully prepared to go inside and kill until they were killed. Those are the instructions that they had been given. But because law enforcement suspected there might be violence at the funeral, law enforcement put a lot of protection on the funeral. The young men saw that it was going to be impossible because of the law enforcement presence and abandoned the plane. Followers of Allred blame their leader's murder on Erval LeBaron's Church of the Lamb of God, and the case becomes federal. The FBI became involved because it was suspected that those who had committed the Allred murder had fled to another state. Erval and several members of the hit squad flee to Mexico as indictments come down charging 11 people with crimes including murder and conspiracy. Anna has no idea of the turmoil within her family when the FBI initiates a huge, multi-state raid of the family's homes. Erva LeBaron leads the Church of the Lamb of God, a violent polygamist cult that considers murder a religious rite. 
After sending his followers to take out rival polygamist leaders, Ervil flees to Mexico. One of Ervil's 50 children, nine-year-old Anna, is terrified when the FBI raids a safe house in Denver, Colorado, where she lives with several members of her large family. We're just little kids, and all of a sudden there's this commotion and men ordering us not to move and ordering us where to go and what to do. We were taught and trained that the police and the authorities were our enemies. And so knowing that our enemies were in the house was frightening for a little child. The FBI were taking the adults one by one and questioning them. As kids, we were taught if anybody asked us any questions, especially outsiders or policemen, we were taught to say, I don't know, to every question. You know, what's your name? I don't know. Are you hungry? I don't know. Everything was I don't know. As a rule, polygamists are raised to be culturally sort of secretive and elusive about what families they come from and who their parents are because their way of life is a felony. You don't want to be the one who says the wrong thing and sends your mom to prison or your dad to prison. Like the Hendrickson family, in HBO's Big Love, the cult members work hard to conceal their polygamous lifestyle from the outside world. The raid is accepted as a normal part of their lives. Anytime the FBI or the authorities became involved and the kids became aware of it, we were just told that we were being persecuted because we were God's chosen people. The FBI raids failed to yield any arrests of those wanted for murder. But the children are moved again, this time to Mexico. We were awakened again in the middle of the night by my older brother, Ed. We were told not to ask any questions. Grab a few things, whatever you could get quickly, put in the back of a station wagon, and driven more than 1,500 miles from Denver to Veracruz, Mexico. In Mexico, Anna and some of the other children are left at the home of strangers, a couple recently converted to their father's cult. Anna quickly realizes that the couple is not happy to have new mouths to feed. I'm nine years old and I'm put to work to help bring in money to feed the family. At first, I would just worked for the lady that lived in the apartment downstairs from me. I was in charge of doing all the laundry for the whole household. And this wasn't like with a washer and dryer. This was on a washboard. When that ended, we would go and collect rocks and paint them. And I would go door to door selling painted rocks and calling them paperweights. We weren't in school. The adults would not leave the house very much because most of them were wanted. We just did what we were told. And the people that were taking care of us weren't always very nice to us. So there was a lot of suffering that happened that was needless. Still in hiding, Ervil moves often between his various safe houses. One day, Anna gets word that her father is coming to stay with them. It was a big deal when my dad would show up. Because he was wanted, he would come and go at night. So it was a very controlled situation. Looking up at him and knowing who he was and seeing him, it was a profound moment. I wasn't afraid of him. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know anything. He was my dad. Ervil spends his time holed up in the back bedroom, writing sermons. Normally, we weren't allowed to sleep on the bed. We slept on these little foam mattresses on the floor. But somehow, I ended up on the bed, and I watched him till late in the night. He did a lot of writing, longhand on these yellow legal pads, 
just page after page. And I watched until I fell asleep. Later that night, Anna is awakened by someone shaking her foot. He woke me up in the middle of the night. Hey, Anna. And then when I was awake, he was like, do you know how to make coffee? And I said, yes, even though I'd never made coffee before in my life. But I'd watched people make coffee. <laughs> so I figured I could do what they did and make a cup of coffee for my dad. A couple more times that night, he would wake me up and ask for another cup of coffee. So I, I assume I made it fine <laughs> um, if he was asking for it more than once. Ervil then asks Anna to accompany him for the day while he preaches to the locals. We were having breakfast, and Dad said, do you want to go on a mission? I had no idea what a mission was, but I felt special when I got picked to go. Anna and Ervil are accompanied by Rena, the youngest of Ervil's 13 wives. Unaware of her father's hit squad and Rena's murderous past, Anna sees his father's wife as another mother figure in her life. She was a kind person and she treated us well. She was raised more traditionally, and so she had that kind of idea about how children should be treated. And so she would teach us little songs, children's songs, when she was caring for us. We drove to a little town in the middle of nowhere, Mexico, and we got to listen to him preach. It was very boring for a nine-year-old girl sitting there listening to him and he could talk for a long time. By the time they leave, rain has caused the ground to turn to mud, and young Anna is covered. An angry Ervil bars his daughter from getting into the car and leaves his wife to clean up the mess. Rena washed the dirt off as best as she could, and she was really sweet and tender about it. I didn't feel like I was in trouble with her. I just knew my dad was not happy with me. Despite their precautions, Ervil and his followers are still the subject of a manhunt. On Halloween 1978, the family is once again raided by federal authorities. This time, it's the Mexican Federales. And this time, Ervil is home when the authorities burst in. If you like what you're hearing, check out the Real Crime TV series on Reels Channel. You'll find chilling true stories of capital offenders brought to justice, like Chris Watts, the Colorado killer dad, Jeffrey Epstein, the sex trafficker who died in jail with his secrets, and a new report on the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Then, check out Reels' medical mystery series, Autopsy. Autopsy reveals what really killed screen and music legends like Amy Winehouse, River Phoenix, Elvis Presley, and Robin Williams. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Then check the top of the screen to find Reels in your area. Ervil LeBaron is the leader of a large, murderous, polygamist cult known as the Church of the Lamb of God. Wanted for the murder of his rivals, Ervil and other members of his cult hide out in Mexico. One of Ervil's 50 children, nine-year-old Anna, has been trained to hide the truth from the outside world. We were taught to refer to my dad as tío, which means uncle in Spanish. We were taught to refer to the sister wives as our aunts and all of our half-siblings as our cousins. 
easier for the adults to not have to answer questions. On Halloween night, 1978, Mexican authorities raid an apartment occupied by the cult members. One night we're sleeping and the door opens. The Mexican police came in and they were looking for my father and other members of our cult. While Ervil hides in the back bedroom, the Mexican authorities question everyone in the apartment. They carry wanted posters of Ana's family members. They had wanted posters that you could see the people. I didn't know what it was to be wanted, you know. I didn't know anything. The difficult part was being shoved into a corner and told not to disturb and not to ask questions. You were taught to say, I don't know. Yo no sé, his Spanish. <laughs> and so the people coming and going, the police coming in and out, it was frightening for a child to experience. Ervil's right-hand man, Dan Jordan, was asked, are you Ervil Baron?" And he said, yes. So they arrested him. And my dad was able to get away. He was loyal to my father. He believed in my father. He believed he was the prophet. And he saw it as an opportunity to protect my dad. And so he did. Marina was caught, and I believe the person that was driving them was caught. The family legend is that the Mexican authorities mistook Dan Jordan for Ervil. And Ervil then claimed that he had transmogrified, that the Lord was with him and made the Mexican authorities believe that Dan Jordan was him. Of course, everybody in the church thought it was a great miracle that he was able to evade the authorities and evade arrest. After the raid, Anna is moved again still unaware that her family members are wanted for murder. I get sent to go live with my sister Ramona, which, because I have so many strong maternal feelings of attachment with her, it was such a relief to be with my sister, someone that cared about me. I didn't know at the time that she was in hiding. I remember getting so excited because I was going to get to have my own room the first time in my life. To get to have my own room. I remember going to sleep the first night in my room and feeling afraid. You know, it's a new, strange place, and I'm nine, so I get up and go to her room because I'm too afraid to sleep by myself. While in Mexico, Anna also becomes close with other members of her extended family, including Rena's brother, Mark Shanoth, and his wife, Lillian. When Mark and Lillian came for the weekend to spend time at the beach house with Ramona and all of us, that was my first time really getting to know them. Mark was having a beer and he let me taste his. <laughs> so um, clearly he was a, just a little bit more worldly than other members of our cult <laughs> if he was enjoying a beer <laughs> in february 1979 members of Ervil's hit squad are tried for their part in the murder of rulin allred and the attempted murder of verlin LeBaron. they were brought back to utah put on trial in the third district court all were found not guilty Ervil was also charged but he was a fugitive at the time in mexico 
At trial, the defense puts the blame for the crimes on a former cult member who is now deceased. And the remaining members of the hit squad walk away free. After the acquittals, the family returns to the United States. Anna is sent back to Denver, where she is reunited with her brother Heber. Heber was a little bit older than me, and he had a room downstairs in the basement. Somehow he had a television set, <laughs> and he would watch Battlestar Galactica. I remember one day going into his room and asking to watch it with him, and he wanted to make a deal with me that if I would help keep his room clean, he would let me watch the show with him. And so I gladly did it because it meant I got to spend some time with my brother. And TV was something that we weren't allowed to watch a lot of it because it was so worldly. Despite the acquittals for the Rulon All Red murder, the cult's luck is about to run out. In May 1979, a family member is successfully convicted of murder for the first time. A few weeks later, authorities in Mexico finally catch up with Erval LeBaron. He's extradited back to the United States. He's arrested, tried, and convicted for Allred's murder. And he is sentenced to a life in prison at the Utah State Prison. The sensational nature of Erval's crimes draws attention from the national media. In the news, he was referred to as the Mormon Manson because of how many people he would order his followers to kill. I didn't care what the newspaper said because, you know, we were taught and brainwashed that we were being persecuted. And so I wasn't aware that he was wanted for murder. You just feel a connection because he's your father. And so when I saw a picture of him in the newspaper, I cut it out and put it in my album. Despite their leader's incarceration, in Denver, it's business as usual. Erville's right-hand man, Dan Jordan, runs the family's used appliance business. And once again, the children are put to work. All of these kids, we were used as basic slave labor. In the warehouse, the boys would usually be taught to repair the appliances, and the girls generally got to clean them. And so as soon as you were old enough to be put to work, eight, nine, ten years old, you were put to work. There was a lot of abuses that happened in those warehouses. Dan was in charge, and so, you know, it came from the top down. My brother Heber, Hiram, Reuben, you know, just... Boys are just a little bit more open about how they feel about things, and they would back talk or get upset, and they would get beaten, and you would watch it happen right in the open. And you learned really fast to not cause problems, to do what you were told, to keep your head down. Eventually, some of Anna's family decides to pursue a different path. My older brother, Ed, was living and working in Houston along with Mark Shanoff and Dwayne Shanoff and wanted a better life for his siblings that were in Denver being worked like slaves. So I remember the day he shows up at the house with a U-Haul truck. And for like what felt like the first time ever, we packed up our things and moved. In Houston, Anna starts working at Mark's shop. Life in Houston was probably the best life I had ever known. It was the used appliance business, of course, and we still had to work. But Mark would pay us $5 a week, which felt like a big sum of money. We were enrolled in school. We got to take sack lunches to school with us. 
with a sandwich that looked like other kids. You know, when you're that age, you're opening your eyes and you're beginning to see things. Now, I still didn't know I was in a cult, but you were seeing more of the world. You feel normal for the first time ever. Despite his incarceration, Ervil continues to control his followers from prison. One thing that's really interesting and unique about fundamentalist leaders is that once you become the head of one of these groups, that's a job you have for life. And so Ervil, even from behind bars at the Utah State Prison, is still able to direct things to happen with the church. Ervil continues his prolific writing, penning a book of prophecies and instruction for his followers. He writes this thing called the Book of the New Covenant. It's a 400-page treatise, I suppose, of his anger. It sort of documents all the people that he believes have wronged him in some way, who have been disloyal, or who have in some way gone against the church and his teachings. And many people have come to call it his hit list. At one point, he orders his followers to come to bust him out of prison, maximum security prison, you know, guns a-blazing. And it's a suicide mission. So nobody does it. He feels betrayed by them. And so they end up in his book. Dan Jordan was one of those listed on the hit list. Dwayne Chanot, Ed Marston, others that were on Erbil's bad side. In August 1981, Erbil dies in prison, but the cult he created doesn't die with him. That book actually described events that were to occur later on in the history of the family. Convinced that he is the one true prophet who will bring about the kingdom of God on earth, Erva LeBaron creates a large polygamist cult and sends his followers to murder his rivals. In May 1980, Ervil is convicted of ordering the murders and sent to prison, where he writes a book outlining his beliefs, including a list of people he believes have turned against his church. When Ervil dies in prison in August 1981, his followers, including daughter Anna, are shocked and devastated by the news. That event changed a lot of things for a lot of people. Nobody expected my dad to die. We'd been praying on our knees every night, circled up for my dad's release from prison. And then he dies in prison. That broke everything into pieces. Some members of the family, Mark Shinoth being one, went off to just have a different life, abandon what they'd been involved in before, although I can't imagine how difficult that might have been because of the crimes that they'd been involved in that they'd never been held accountable for. Mark and Ed and Dwayne were all moving steadily away from the life that they knew. They were wanting to improve their lives, to live lives that were more normal and more like the rest of the world. And they were making steps away from the cult life that we had known. But high-ranking members of the cult, including Ervil's former right-hand man, Dan Jordan, aren't happy with the changes. Dan Jordan convinced my mom that Mark Shanoff was leading Ervil's children on a path to hell. And so my mom decides to move back to Denver and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. 13-year-old Anna makes a decision that changes the path of her life. So I picked up the phone and I called Lillian and said, 
I don't want to go to Denver. I don't remember a lot about our conversation. Just the words she said to me, start walking. I hung up the phone. And I walked out of my house with just the clothes on my back. I was very afraid. I wasn't planning to leave a cult. I didn't even know I was in a cult. I just knew I didn't want to go back to Denver. I didn't want to live the life that we had there. I knew the life that we had with Mark and Lillian was so much better. They cared for us. They were trying to improve our lives. Anna stays with Mark and Lillian, who take her in as one of their own children. They enrolled me in a little Christian school. They, of course, took care of me like I was one of their kids. And I worked really hard for them. You know, so it was a very symbiotic relationship. Mark and Lillian are really the heroes of my story. I owe a debt of gratitude to Mark and Lillian that I will never be able to repay. But as Anna ages, she becomes curious about the family she left behind. So I'm living with Mark and Lillian, and I came across the book, The Prophet of Blood, written about my dad, the untold story of the Herbal Baron family or something like that. And I'm reading this book and finding out for the first time, one, that I grew up in a cult, and two, that there were people that I loved and cared about that had murdered people, people that I knew. And because of the circumstances, it wasn't like I could go and talk to anyone about these things. Mark was involved in some of it. So how was I supposed to go and, you know, ask him if these things were true or not or anything like that? It was just such a, a difficult time to, to find these things out and to know the things that my family members had done. Anna struggles to come to terms with the truth about her family, unaware that the remaining followers of Erva LeBaron have regrouped. After my father passed away, there were factions of our group all over. There were people in Phoenix and California and in Mexico, and nobody knew who was in charge, and everyone thought that they were the one. My dad left very conflicting messages in the Book of the New Covenant, and so really nobody knew. And I wasn't aware of it at the time, but what happened after that was a bloodbath. People killing each other, trying to figure out who was going to be the last man standing, basically. In Mexico, Ana's brother, Heber, emerges as the new leader. This group of second-generation children who were in Mexico were committed to following through on those instructions that Erbil had left in the Book of the New Covenant. It became their Bible of sorts. They take this book, this treatise, as sort of their marching orders to avenge their father. They begin this, we believe, by assassinating people in 1987. One of the people named in the Book of the New Covenant is Ervil's former right-hand man, Dan Jordan. Dan Jordan's wife actually accepted the kids from Mexico when they called up. It was all part of the plot to kill Dan. The family went to Dan, lived with Dan, went on the hunting trip in October with Dan and set him up. Heber then walked up to where Dan had come away from the campsite and killed him in the LeBaron fashion. Killed him with one shot to the chest and two shots to the head. In the wake of Dan's death, 
Mark and Lillian are forced to tell Anna the truth. I had just graduated from high school, and Mark sits me and his oldest son down, along with Lillian, and tells us that Dan Jordan had just been killed. Mark says that his name is on this list that my dad had left of people that had betrayed him. He started carrying a gun. He told us to keep an eye out for anything suspicious, to look over our shoulders. And we began to live life in fear. And knowing what I had read in the book about my family, I knew that the threat was real. But then, you know, life goes on. And for a period of time, it seems to go back to normal. And then eventually you kind of put it out of your mind because it's just too hard to think about. But in Mexico, Heber and his group are readying the next phase of their plot. They go on to plan the Texas murders in 1988, which is like the simultaneous assassination of three people at different locations in Texas. On June 27, 1988, the group puts their plan in motion. I was supposed to be at the office with Mark that day. But because I'd been sick for a long time, I fall asleep on the couch waiting for Lillian. And she comes and finds me and says, you know, why don't you just stay home today? And a little bit after 4 o'clock, I get a phone call. And I'm asked, you know, if I'm okay and if the kids are safe. Where are all the kids? And I could tell by the caller's tone that something was really, really wrong. Polygamist Irva LeBaron leads a large family cult that murders anyone their leader considers a rival. When Irville is sent to prison for ordering the killings, he decides that his former followers are betrayers. Before dying in prison, Irville writes a book instructing his children to murder these wayward family members, believing it is the only way to save their souls. Irville's son, Heber LeBaron, and several others plan a simultaneous attack on former cult members across Texas. Heber's sister, Anna, is home sick from her job at the family business on the day the plan is carried out. I was supposed to be at the office with Mark that day, but because I'd been sick for a long time, I stayed home. On June 27th, according to plan, a call was made setting up a pickup of an appliance at a location on Rena Street in Houston. Dwayne Chenot went out to make the pickup at the time that was prescribed, which was in the afternoon, right around 4 o'clock. Dwayne took Jenny, his 8-year-old daughter, with him to the pickup. When he got to the place, he got out of the vehicle, was standing by the driver's side door. The shooter walked up to Dwayne, shot him in the chest, bent over and shot him twice in the head which was the same way that Dan Jordan had been killed in October. Jenny was screaming. The shooter walked up, leaned in, and killed her. About the same time as Dwayne and Jenny were murdered, Heber went in to Mark's place of business and killed Mark in his office. Came back out called to those who were waiting in Dallas to say that it was done and to go for it. At which point, the shooter in that pair killed Ed Marston. All three 
of these small groups then met up at a prescribed place and made their escape. Sick at home, Anna is startled awake by a phone call. A little bit after four o'clock, I get a phone call and I'm asked, you know, if I'm okay and if the kids are safe. And I could tell by the caller's tone that something was really, really wrong. And I was told to get the kids together, that somebody was going to come and pick us up and to not ask any questions. And we were taken to a safe house. But it was a few hours before anyone would come and tell me what happened. So we're first told that Mark is dead. And it's a relief to me that Lillian is still alive. And then later, as the news comes in and things are happening really quickly, the news arrives that my brother Ed had also been killed in Dallas. And then Mark's brother, Dwayne, and his daughter, Jenny, were also killed. And Jenny was killed because she was a witness. And had I been at the office with Mark that day, I would have been killed because I would have been a witness. And it was my brother Heber that killed Mark. And he would have killed me too. In the aftermath of the murders, the surviving family members are devastated. When Rena heard of what had happened in Texas, she said the bloodbath had started again. And Rena should have known because Rena knew she'd been involved in the killing of Dr. Allred. And she was seeing it come around in the next generation. It was a difficult time for Lillian. And about seven months after Mark was killed, she took her life. I hold my father responsible for that. Even though he'd been dead and gone for a long time, it was his orders in that book of the New Covenant that my siblings were following. They were brainwashed to believe that that's what they had to do. I mean, they were bound. They didn't know another way. The ones that made it out alive, our lives were never the same. The LeBarons involved in these murders sort of disappear. They go on the lam. They aren't found immediately, some of them for many, many years. When we realized that the murders and these family members were all related, it fell to me to organize the task force. The task force was formed in the summer of 1988, and there was a decade of work that the task force was involved in before this was all brought to an end. Following the four o'clock murders, a traumatized Anna separates from her family and goes into hiding for years, plagued by nightmares of the vicious murders carried out by her siblings. After the last of the killers is finally captured, she re-emerges to find a very different family than the one she left behind. Years and years had gone by without anybody being killed. And it was frightening to reconnect with them. But then once I did, getting to know them as real people, real humans that just had some very, very wrong beliefs about what their part in this world was, getting to see them on the other side of all the tragedies that occurred and to connect with them as my siblings was such a big part of my healing. 
I got married and started a family, and I came to attend the wedding of one of Mark and Lillian's daughters. And Rena comes and brings some kids that I wasn't familiar with. It turns out they're Heber's kids. And, you know, I was delighted to meet them, took pictures and embraced them as my nieces and nephews. Heber is in prison for life for what he did, and there's no way to undo that. Heber has also renounced what he did. I mean, we were all brainwashed. People were doing things that they thought were right at the time. But, you know, for Heber, he doesn't have the benefit of being surrounded by family. The surviving members of the LeBaron clan have put their deadly past behind them. The beauty of all of this is that everyone is out. There's no one who believes that Ervil LeBaron was any kind of prophet. The distance from Ervil and Ervil's pernicious way of looking at the world and the pernicious way he dealt with his children, the self-centered, egotistical, murderous person that he was, the further you get from that, the more attenuated the threat becomes. I wrote my book and I've been sharing my story because I want people to know that people can change. Even if you're brainwashed your whole life and then your eyes are opened, you can change. And my family has changed. For so long, I was so ashamed of my family of origin. I did not want to talk about it to anyone. I wouldn't share it. And now I'm not ashamed to be a LeBaron anymore. I'm proud of my family. I'm proud of the people that they're becoming. I Lived with a Killer comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To find more original programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com to find us on your system. You'll also find extras from the TV version of I Lived with a Killer, including tell-all interviews with family members and crime scene photos. You'll get only on Reels Channel.